This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. My name is Garrett Lay. I'm a dual degree graduate student in architecture and the critical curatorial and conceptual practices architecture program here at Columbia GSAP. Today I'm speaking with Keller Easterling in advance of her lecture at the school on April 4, 2018. Keller is an architect, writer, and professor at Yale University who has lectured and written extensively on globalization, infrastructure, and spatial politics. Her books on these subjects include Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space, and and Enduring Innocence, Global Architecture, and Its Political Masquerades. Her research and writing will also be exhibited as part of the U.S. Pavilion at the 2018 Venice Architecture Biennale. Thank you for speaking with, with me today, Keller. Of course, your work is very important to the questions that the CCCP program seeks to address and our studies in pedagogy, so we're thrilled to have you here today. To start us off, I was wondering if you could expand on sort of the primary threads of your research around extra statecraft, as well as the expanded global matrix of logistics, formulas, and mobilities, and the modes of power in which they are embedded, and as well as any new or current trajectories of this research. Well, thank you, and it's a privilege to be invited by the CCCP program. That's a program I very much admire, admire all of your work. So my work is about infrastructure space, but that's not an infrastructure of pipes and wires under the ground, but a set of rules and relationships in which uh, buildings and activities are suspended. And, you know, in kind of a contemporary experience economy, that's repeatable formulas and spatial products that are replicating around the world. That space is interesting to me, not only uh, because of its wild mixtures of fairy tales and violence, but also because it's rapidly 3D printing a new layer of the Earth's crust, and because it's kind of a secret weapon of some stealthy global power. Uh, So while it needn't necessarily interest the discipline, um, it is space, and so I am wondering if our manipulation of that space might uh, be empowering and, however unlikely it may seem, might offer another set of political and aesthetic capacities, even um, another approach to form-making or activism, and that it might be a way for spatial variables to have more authority in global governance even. What sort of ideas are you sort of attempting here to rethink within our, the discipline of architecture, let's say spatial politics more broadly? Um, what, what authors do you seek to, to build off of or challenge? I mean, it's, it's kind of an odd assortment of thinkers I mean, of, of course, there's someone like Bruno Latour, but while a book like Extra Statecraft, some people read it for the reportage, some people read it for the evidentiary segments. But for me, the book is a little bit more about the more contemplative sections that are thinking about you know, how to kind of look at the world with half-closed eyes and see disposition and temperament and so on in... Uh, spatial relationships. And so that's nourished by 
you know, thinkers like uh, Gregory Bateson or uh, Gilbert Ryle and some of the newest work on medium design, which is kind of really indulging those contemplations, is building on you know, media theorists who are looking beyond media as, you know, kind of communication media and thinking back to more elemental media of surrounding earth, water, fire, air, you know. So there's a whole family of, of media theorists and thinkers who, whose conversation I now want to join or try to contribute to with spatial models. And, you know, so that, that's a whole other set of, of thinkers. You, you mentioned earlier this, um, this concept of, of the sort of new layer that's being 3D printed onto the earth as a sort of secret weapon of contemporary political power, obfuscated beyond view. Um, could you sort of expand on, on the politics of that camouflage of secrecy and then maybe how we could think that within these concepts of, of media and, and the politics of, say, appearance, et cetera? Well, the reason why I'm saying that I think it's a secret weapon of stealthy power is because there is, on the one hand, an, an image of a glittering skyline, and we could say, well, that's a bunch of shiny buildings. But so much of the spaces that I'm looking at are creating de facto forms of, of polity that are outpacing law, and they have enormous power because they are undeclared or or the declaration about these spaces is decoupled from what they're actually doing. So a lot of this work, you know, the sort of half-closed eyes work or the attempt to look at disposition or temperament is to, is to learn to foreground the activity of organizations and their political temperament and disposition apart from, you know, kind of like what they look like. So it's we're working on kind of chemistry of space and reagents in space, as much as it is also working on objects, of course working on objects, but, but also working on active forms in space. And that, the politics of that space is, to me, incredibly consequential. I mean, by the thousands of acres a day, you know, like so many of the kinds of spaces I look at are creating a politics of exclusion. They are you know, cartoon vessels of, of, of neoliberalism. And they are creating space outside of the realm, a kind of extra state space outside the realm of, of a popular political control. Similarly, you've, in sort of within this vein, you, you've written and spoken about binaries, closed loops, and one-to-one connections as conceptual models for grappling with these contemporary politics. Um, as well as its violences. Uh, could you briefly explain these concepts and how you've mobilized them in your work? Well, um, in that decoupling, there's, there's everything that the organization is saying it's doing. It's about brotherhood, it's about uh, ecology, whatever, some script. But, but I'm wondering if we can kind of tune our perceptions to see the ways in which so, so many dispositions of these organizations are, on the one hand, closed loops that only like to have kind of compatible, circulate compatible information. And whenever there's a challenge to that, they lash out with a binary. 
And you know, that's something one can see from every scale of power. That, that's how power operates. Um, from the way we keep ourselves whole, every pure and whole every day, to the, to the way that the orange president, you know, maintains his looping story, to the way in which, you know, a free zone only circulates compatible information and has managed to expel any inconvenient politics or people that, that uh, obstruct profit. So, yeah, the, the, being able to see that loop and binary, up, just as we were saying before, apart from whatever the organization is saying, seems to me to be useful. And then trying to figure out what are the things that you do to, to break that loop or binary? How do you add extrinsic information? How do you alter the temperament of organizations? Which is very much related to this uh the sort of these failures of, of rationality that you've spoken about and encountering working within this sort of matrix of, of, of counterlogics. Um, you, you bring up the example of the architect's master plan and manifesto, which are uh, somehow politically unable to dispute the extra statecraft and the unreasonable politics through which it sustains itself. Could you speak a bit more about the, this currency of disinformation? and the ways in which it, it mines rationality for politicizing binaries? And then more specifically, what's at stake for architecture's knowledge practices within this economy of irrationality? Well, I mean, it's almost too obvious to say, but sort of part of that desire for the loop, you know, is the desire to be right, which is sadly a sad, sad human desire to constantly be right. You know, we will go to bed tonight hoping that we were right about everything. But that scales up, you know, to all of these giant socio-technical organizations and infrastructures that I'm looking at. So it's also very clear to me that our attempts to be right or are either the, the attempts of power to be right or our attempts to sort of fight them by also being right is just a way to feed their violence or their rancor, their own kind of oscillation between loops and binaries. So in the world that I'm looking at, being right is a really stupid idea. It's just really weak. And it's not, it's not powerful against superbugs and gurus and bullies because they can kind of run rings around reasonable politics. They can create Teflon out of lies. They are very good at that. It's, you know, like Musel said, you know, that stupidity can take on all the guises of truth. Truth, on the other hand, is at a disadvantage. So being reasonable is not the strongest position. It's really being able to kind of play a split screen between being able to alter the disposition of an organization and then being able to also manipulate the spin and story that makes it travel in culture, makes it contagious or makes it effective in culture. To, to the last part of your question, it seems to me that as designers, we have to be able to do both those things. Actually hopeless if we don't know how to do both those things. And sometimes, I don't know, I'll be asking tonight the same question, something I'm wondering about, like do we have the stomach for it, you know? For not only making a spatial change, but for the persuasion, for the spin that goes with it. If we really want to enter another degree of criticality. Yeah, you know, what are the new terms of this critical politics? Is it a willingness to engage ethically with 
I emphasize ethically there, of course, with these new dimensions of political discourse. What is it? What does it mean? I mean, you've pointed to this tension. I mean, do we have the stomach to it? And, and how does this challenge the modes of logic which drive what we consider to be rigorous architecture? Right. The the whole the whole imaginary of solution oriented architecture, problem solving, how that motivates a whole set of techniques within the studio, and as they proliferate out into architecture production. Are we willing to come to new critical terms and frameworks um, in which we can make space too, as well, right? Right. Because, I mean, the kinds of work I'm talking about are not solutionist. They're mm-hmm. actually talking about things that shouldn't always work, uh, not because they're vague or because they're weak, but on the contrary, so that they have enough temporal dimension to be able to react when they're politically outmaneuvered. So it's not a, a kind of fixed solution, but a way of working, you know, I always say kind of like more like, a, more like playing pool than, you know, we're having a right answer doesn't do you much good. Yeah. It's your reactivity that you're testing and, you know, you're being able to see kind of a branching set of options. Um, and I always say that, so forgive me for repeating it, but yeah, so the political savvy of form making might rely on, you know, not knowing the answer, um, but coming up with organs of interplay and other kinds of modes of form making that, you know, have the capacity to react to changing conditions. I think one of your more powerful statements that you made recently in a lecture was that a sneakier David never bothers to kill Goliath if he can use his larger size to amplify change, he's too smart to be right. You mentioned earlier that having the stomach to engage in these modes of criticality. What does it mean for the figure of the architect particularly to be okay with not being right? Well, I, I suppose it, it means that, you know, there's another kind of aesthetic pleasure, uh, another kind of artistry that... I mean, you think of a pool player as an artist of a certain kind, but there is another kind of artistry associated with this work. And I suspect it's not for everyone, that it's, you know, with much more something that's unfolding in time, that's leveraging, that's attuned to temperament, you know, that's, that's, that's even, you know, it's in no way working from within. That's collusion. Um, but it is potentially manipulating large organizations. Like if Goliath will multiply a move that you want to make, you know, especially in the kind of spaces I look at, we're just filled with multipliers and switches and repeatable things. You know, if if a move you make might be repeated in that landscape, you might let the landscape carry it, you know, or as a germ that kind of undoes the organization until they figure out how to cheat you back. There's not a solution in this kind of work with these huge landscapes that, you know, are unfolding in time and territory. The These concepts, I think, are challenging because they, or rather, they're important because they challenge, on the one hand, the sort of political imaginaries that we deploy in producing architecture. 
as well as the suggestion that those imaginaries were always just that, imaginaries, right? That these sort of use of affects, systems, global logistics that of course come to the fore over the, over the past uh, decades, but have always been at work, right? It also insists, I think, on a certain set of historical reevaluations about how architecture has been thought and sort of the real efficacy that architects and architecture both being different figures with their own efficacies have had, right? And, and I'm wondering, similarly, thinking then about what balances do the regimes of architectural production, including the aesthetic, organizational, and computational, have in this sort of tactical and agile architectural politics? Well, in, in my experience with you know, working on designs and on design studios and so on, which are kind of adopting this habit of mind, it's ultimately practical, <laughs> extremely practical. So uh, not abstract or obtuse, but um, like pulling out into macro-organizational levels um, in a lot of the work we do ends up creating a whole array, a whole spectrum of reasons to design from designing kind of organizational protocols to regular architectural precipitates you know stuff with shapes and outlines you know um so you know the wall if you were to look at the wall you know at the end of a a studio it's filled with architecture <laughs> at every level detail temporal dimension. So what we've found in the work that we've been doing is that we can discover more reasons for design and we can all kind of elevate the status of spatial practices, you know, by kind of finding more reasons why they matter, why it matters. And somehow that step back into kind of macro-organizational level, end up revealing a lot of those things, more than we can work on. Um, so again, quite practical. Which is to say that this sort of work is based in a certain feedback loop of articulation, right, in the, in the space of architecture, say research, drawings, et cetera, into conceptual frameworks for intervention, but non-solution intervention, and then back into the system. Is that correct? Yeah, um, and when I say non-solution, it doesn't mean that you know we're we're not addressing stubborn problems and trying to relieve them in somehow in some way. We're trying to. Um, I think what we're always trying to do is just kind of add more information to the table. You know, we're trying to make, uh, trying to break that loop or that binary, and you know, create a, a more information-rich urbanity. What sort of representational techniques have you found helpful in mobilizing architecture towards these goals? Well, I mean, certainly some of the the kinds of things we end up drawing might have time in them, you know. So this could be simple time lapse or a way to see move after move after move, so a lot of the things, a lot of the things that we end up making are, we end up calling them something like a ratchet or something, you know. But where you're trying to kind of represent how does something 
happen and then what happens next and then what happens next and then what happens next. So we've, we're, we struggle with ways to actually represent that. Um, but then it's also uh, seeing different kinds of sites. If one is making a site that is a, you know, not a, a site that's necessarily a building, but a site that is a multiplier, a multiplier might be a detail. And so then the, the, the challenge is to represent, okay, how does that detail become contagious? In a landscape, or how might it become contagious in a landscape? Or so so much of it is about kind of population effects, or or being able to alter the potentials between relationships between things. So ways to show how that unfolds. But but sometimes you know what you see on the wall is you know construction detail. You know it's uh, not unusual. But sometimes I uh, was working with some students in the last few weeks. We kept saying, "Yeah, maybe these documents that we're working are some kind of like cross between a you know novel and an actuarial table or something." Because there's a lot of detail, a lot of research that goes into making some of these choices. Sometimes working on non-spatial things to have a spatial outcome, and then you know, as we were saying before, it's crucial that one tries to understand, well, what's the narrative that would make this travel in culture? You know, these sort of, these questions of representation, et cetera, also, I think, recall some of the points that you've made about the efficacy of, of not stating intention, which in many ways brings together some of the things we've been talking about regarding strategic camouflage, working in always in strategic relationship to the system. Could you expand a bit more on within architecture, what it means to not necessarily state intention, understanding sort of the new rules of the game that you have articulated in terms of like uh, the sort of disinformation economy? Well, I'm not sure that I'm trying to create disinformation. I guess I'm, I'm advocating something like making environments more and more and more information rich. But yes, I mean, things travel in culture, things are successful in culture, not necessarily because they are a good and reasonable idea. <laughs> you know, um, they travel in culture because of a whole bunch of other things. You know, they're cute, they're creepy, they're, you know, they, they have some other, you know, attractor. They, so... I mean, yes, it's important to kind of keep people guessing, maybe a little bit. If you're a pool player, you don't call your shots. But it's not about trying to, you know, deliberately lie or something like that. It's just it's trying to uh, understand the ways in which messages decouple from from organizations and be able to kind of play that somehow. So, and yes, against some really stubborn powers, I mean, the sort of super bug powers that are really good at this, that are really good at playing both sides of the screen, you know, the kind of Putin orange ones, you know, like, then the gloves are off. You know, then, then you have to be able to, to play both sides of the screen with, with masters at that. You know, you have to be able to counter that with people who are, yeah, super bugs. 
Absolutely. I mean, they, I mean, in, in so many ways, these these concepts are completely foregrounded by that contemporary political condition under the Trump administration. And it also sort of recalls, you know, thinking about the sort of the ways in which things traffic, you know, it's not logic, it's the, the serotonin rush of, of feeling as one is correct, it's affect, it's these, these conditions which are now manipulated by algorithms. I feel like a really potent example of these conditions is, is, is this Russian disinformation campaign, right? Their use of memes that were, that were to circulate online and appeal to people's interest in a binary politics of left and right, right? Along the most egregious possible axioms of disagreement, right? Race, sexuality, etc. I think that in many ways it's a, you know, thinking about those the circulation of those images, right? And then all of the power relationships that are structured around it, they, it seems in many ways very much a, a case study in these conditions that you're addressing. Yes. And I mean, one reason why I'm kind of advocating for a spatial information system, for a heavy information system where, you know, all the lumpy things in our world are part of an information system. Like, you know, I always say, you know, it's like Gregory Bateson said, you know, kind of a man, a tree, and an axe is an information system. That That is crucial now, it seems to me, as a kind of backstop against certain kinds of other slippery information systems. And so this whole idea of medium design that I was talking about is suggesting that, you know, even at a moment of digital ubiquity, when we assume that the mode of innovation has to be digital, I'm saying, no, um, maybe space itself is the underexploited medium of of contemporary innovation and, and one that, you know, that allows for mixtures of information systems and and really lumpy, really rich mixtures. Uh, you know, that's the thing that I'm kind of advocating for by by focusing on spatial information systems. Great. I think with that, um, uh, that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Keller. It's really wonderful speaking with you Pleasure. and hearing about your ongoing research. Pleasure. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with Arc Daily. We launched a new series of podcasts called Constructing Practice, in which young architects from around the world speak about their motivations, challenges, and what it means to start a new practice in their respective context. Look for it on iTunes and find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.